Hi everyone, today is September 14th, 2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. So today's a special day. We just had our Neural Codes of Navigation Symposium and we're doing our panel discussion today and we're actually doing it behind closed doors so it may be a little less chaotic for our listeners. Um, I'm gonna pass around, we have a great panel and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves starting with you, Isabel. Isabel Musio from UTSA. Dave Reddish from University of Minnesota. Charlie Wilson, UTSA. Andre Fenton, NYU. Jim Kinnearum, Johns Hopkins. Okay, so there's, uh, we just had a great symposium, and um, there's so much to talk about, of course, and I just want to start with this, this idea of um, you know, navigation. It's such a, a rich field, and that's really reflected in the work of all of you guys. Um, and all of you have variously talked about navigation as both uh, behavior and as a neural computation. Um, and I thought maybe you could say something uh, about using either the behavior as a starting point for understanding the operational needs of navigation and then using those to de deconstruct the neural computation or the neural representations versus starting with neural representations of spatial information and then how they are encoded and adjusted, adjusted by, by then behavior. And sort of, you know, because those approaches are both clearly out there and they have merits and just how, the, how you guys feel about those two vantage points. I think it's important to remember that behaviors can be accomplished by multiple computations. And therefore, unless you actually have a very careful theory with very careful kind of specific predictions to predict protests, the seeing a behavior alone doesn't tell you what the computation is. And that you can actually get what looks like superficially identical behaviors through very different computations that have to be broken apart. I think it's important to be working back and forth between those two carefully. I would even add to that that when we conceive of this one typically imagines that the computations give rise to the behavior, but in reality, the behavior itself is feeding back into the neural system that's actually accomplishing, accomplishing those computations. And so there's really no place to begin, if you will, this circle, right? Right. You have to study them in tandem and in careful tandem. So how, how do we think about that? Are the, are the cognitive spatial maps leading the behavior or trailing it? I mean, where, cause there's an element of prediction involved. How are we sort of getting at some of that with data, with actual Before stuff? we get there, I actually want to follow up what Andre said, actually, something I think is really important, which is that a lot of what we've learned about computation has come from behaviors for which that computation is not necessary. And I think that there's a common belief that in order to study a computation of behavior, the computation has to matter. There's this big push about causal manipulations, which are very important. But most of what we learned about the computations of maps and place cells came from the most trivial behaviors that has no, does not need a hippocampus. But that was very important for understanding that. I think that's an important important point when we talk about that interaction. It's important, uh, and I fully agree. Uh, I, for years, you know, my lab is 
never done anything more complicated than training a rat to run in circles. <laughs> and now we're doing more complicated things, and, and it's hard. And, and, and But people have always been, especially students, they come in, oh, they want to do this and that. And I tell them, look, Slaysills, you know, well, I guess they were discovered that Keith had the animals doing kind of spatial tasks, but not all the complicated. Not the original one. The original, right? the well, original is they the, were, no, the, the, the 71 paper. Oh, that, well, that, right? okay, that was just the animal on, right. sitting in a just box and being yeah. turned, around, turned around, around, basically. Right, right. right? That's where place cells originally right. come from. But certainly grid cells were discovered just with animals doing this right. free foraging behavior, foraging. if you want to call it foraging. But, but the same thing, I need to make all these great discoveries. Uh, uh, I, I think there's something to be, to be said for um, studying these cells when the when they are necessary. Because, but but that tends to be at, at kind of the next level in a way. So if you have two theories about what these cells are doing, or two or point by some certain kinds of computations, and it's critical for one behavior that that depends on computation and not the other. Well, then that kind of the weight of evidence is that it's probably right. <laughs> the first way it's more appropriate to think about it. But but I, but, but it's also but you, 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 it's totally true what you're saying that you don't need to be having a behavior that's quote hippocampus dependent in order to study play cells and get very fine scale information about what they're doing. I agree completely. I do think that a lot of the more complicated kind of second and third order effects that we've started to see in play cells. Have come because people have started looking yes, at exactly. more complicated, you know, behaviors. But as you say, you know, you got to walk before you can run. Yeah. So, can I ask a question about kind of historical? So, uh, it, it seems to me that place cells started out as just a receptive field, and and Jim was saying, you know, he'd been a visual system scientist before, and there was just a sort of notion that a receptive field is a place where the light would make this cell fire, place in space where the light would make this cell fire. And now the place field is just a place in space where the place would make the cell fire. But you guys have taken place cells away from that. It's not really a res- well, it's I more accurate. Place cells, I'd, so historically, I don't think that any of the people actually studying place cells, well, I'm going to be careful not, I'm going to, I'm going to make a claim. I wasn't, this is before our generation, but my understanding is that uh, even the earliest data, they knew play cells weren't merely visual cues. That was no, I didn't mean clear. visual. I meant spatial receptive field. Well, but that's Just an issue. That's I? an issue because when I remember when I was a postdoc and Jim and I were postdocs together, one of the big things is our postdoctoral advisor, Bruce McNaughton, would never let us say, at least I don't know you, I used to call them tuning curves. And I, to this day, say this is tuned to place. It's a tuning curve to place. But Bruce got very insistent not to call them tuning curves. And I think it's because historically they were trying to, they were, that when they called them tuning curves, they were getting, people were confusing them as simple sensory receptive cells. Right. And they're fundamentally not. Right. They're a computation that depends on both internal and external signals. And they're fundamentally internal dynamics is what right. drive. And that's the whole idea about the path integration is that it's, if, I, if you put me in a sensory deprivation chamber, I think my hippocampus would still fire in ways similar to what they do normally, right. because it's, 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 it, it's the primary drive are the internal dynamics of the brain, and the external landmarks are or, or external cues are there to to adjust this. And, and this is this is a a 
a change in how systems neuroscience thinks about the brain overall. Well, you know, the, 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 the idea about a receptive field that comes from the Hugo Beazle and, and Mountcastle and early sensory uh, uh, um, Barlow and, and all those, those guys, that, that it's, it's all very passive in a way. It's, sensory input drives these responses, and now we're in a, in a totally different view of how the brain works, that, that the brain is always chugging away, doing internal dynamics, and I think play cells and grid cells are, 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 are a probably, if not the best system to study those from the level that we're interested in, in terms of system dynamics and how it interacts with, with these external cues. And maybe that's why we it was never found that there is some kind of topographic organization yeah. for the place field, which you find in all the sensory systems. The early experiments from the Muller-Kubi group were explicitly designed to refute that way of looking at the... You mean the sensory? Yes, to refute right. the sensory. The sensory thing or yes. the space detection idea? Uh, both. In fact, I was similarly browbeaten out of calling these things tuning curves, because the question really was, how do you build a place field? Right. There was no explicitly asserted, there's no sensory epithelium, if you will, mm -hmm. that you could follow from the outside world that could give you this kind of activity. That was an explicit assertion. And if you didn't understand that, it would be explained to you over and over and over and over again until you got it. Um, often with evidence, but certainly by belief and assertion. Um, and, and that was the playground, if you will, in which I was certainly trained. I do think the evidence, I mean, particularly, for example, the Jim, Jim's data, you know, Jim Pinnum's data that we all talked about several times today, um, was really has definitively, you know, shown, as Jim says, that the, the internal comes first in the place fields, and that's now pretty, I think the evidence on that is rock solid at this point. Um, and so now, in fact, I find that people do talk about tuned to place. And my understanding of the sensory motor world is that they've shifted now back to, now to much more being like the, the place cell kind of where there's internal dynamics and the sensory is modified. Yeah is modifying an underlying internal dynamics. And that I, I think I agree with Isabel. It, it, it comes from the, uh, the place cell sequence or history. So can I just ask one more thing along that, and you can refute this too if you want to, but then one of the things that I thought um, uh, when I first heard about this many years ago that I thought everybody was saying is that I know where I am by which place cells are firing in my brain. And today, when I heard you speaking, and I think I've been hearing this from other people for a little while, the place cells are often firing in a place to indicate a place that you are not, not a place that you are. Maybe a place you're going to, about a place to you're anticipating, yeah. or even, Andre told us about a place that you totally don't want to be. And the place cells mm -hmm. were telling you, a, in some sense, you, if you interpreted the place cells literally, you would think, that means I'm there. Mm -hmm. But, but that is, probably isn't what the place cells were intending to tell the animal at that moment. But this is true of all the rest of the brain, too. I mean, imagination is activates the same sensory areas. So you can't say that a visual cortex cell is telling you what you're seeing, because sometimes the visual cortex cell is telling what you're imagining about. 
and you're not actually seeing, right? And it is true that within there is a mechanism within the brain somehow to differentiate between imagined firing and real firing, um, because if you can't dif- if you can't uh, separate that, that's hallucination, right? Um, but we know that in the sensory world, we have motor motor imagination. You know, all of these um, uh, mirror neurons are essentially imagination neurons, right? So we know that all these other neurons also fire when you are processing things that are not necessarily immediately available. So if we're switching back and forth really rapidly, and I think I, think I saw s- something about that today too, between the cell representing one thing and a cell representing something else. Maybe we could switch very rapidly between a cell representing an imagined uh, thing that I might, place I might be going, and and the the same cell may be representing where I actually am. Who's distinguishing between those in the the brain? Any any ideas about that? Well, I don't know who's distinguishing, but what one can think about this and not find too big a a problem to solve in one sense in that in each case we're really talking about how the brain builds an internal model of something called a place which has certain properties whether you happen to be there or whether you happen to imagine that place it doesn't have to look fundamentally different from the point of view of the neurons that are realizing this and so now we have the problem of how one recognizes somewhere within the system which version of, a, of this model it is. Is it a made-up model? Right? Is it a model that is simply reflecting what's, on, what's somewhere in the external world? And, and here's where I think what we tend to see is that both components are present. Right? And depending on the behavioral circumstances or even within the same behavioral circumstances, dependent on internal choices like my will, if you will, or the animals, uh, uh, what decision it has come to, or what uh, choices are before it, it can pick one versus another. And that's, to me, the really impressive thing. There is some way of making the distinction because we see the consequence of that distinction. Mechanistically, I don't think we know what that is. I mean, I think there are several possibilities that have been floated, things like internal oscillatory dynamics, changes in the ensembles like Andre was talking about. Uh, Another structure could be kind of flagging a signal saying we're imagining now. But, I mean, I'd be curious if any of the other panelists can you know know of data on this as far as i know there's no solid data on what that mechanism is as andre says we know behaviorally it exists right because we have both function and dysfunction in that recognition of imagination but i don't think anybody has an answer yet to what that difference is I certainly well, I, don't, but I'm looking for it. Clues, yeah, me too. Well, clues would presumably come from patients with different kinds of psychoses where they hear voices or these illusions where, where these, presumably what's gone on, these internal dynamics which are interpreted normally as imagination or things are actually heard as external right. voices. That would presumably be something 
a breakdown of of, 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 of this system. So and it's in schizophrenia, at least it seems yeah. to be decoupling of frontal cortices. Yeah. So so my does yeah. So my does be a single area. This could be at, at levels that we're talking about, not within a certain area or as a mechanism. It's it's the coordination among brain areas and and. I think one even has to be careful about how you you, you pose the question. Like the, the, the hippocampus tells you where you are. I mean, I this is one thing. You know, so we all talk now, but you know, but what our advisors told us, I don't ever say that. So what I ever tell my students is, whenever I hear, oh, the hippocampus tells you what the where the rat thinks it is, don't ever say that. We have no idea if that's true or not. You know, we we it, it, People say it just because you get a remapping of the hippocampus, it's like oh, suddenly the rat thinks it's in a new place. And like, well, no, <laughs> I know the rat. We cause remapping. I know the rat knows it's in the same place. It, 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 it's not like just because the place have changed. Hmm? Do you know that the rat's in the same place hmm? under a remapping? Um, Isn't there behavioral evidence that under remapping, behavior often acts as if it's doesn't always act. It's, I'm not. I'm not 100 convinced of that. Well, if 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 I do a minute, well, in in the Marcus experiments, right. I was thinking where about Marcus. the rat's running around and you change the behavior and the place feels remapped. Now, yeah. maybe it's true that suddenly the rat thinks it's been magically transported to a new location. I would doubt that, and you would have to prove to me that that's it. But but that's it. But people talk about remapping as if it's a given that the the, the just because when you change locations, that causes remapping, that the converse is true, that a, a remapping means that somehow the rat thinks it's in a different location or it changed. And, and, and there's no good evidence, there's no evidence I'm aware of that's, that's true, and I'll be astounded if that is true. So, but, so what that means, though, is that that's not the right way to think about the hippocampus. The hippocampus is not the, the seat of the, the Descartes, you know, the, the, right. the, the person, the, the ego center, you know, that, 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 that this is a computation that is being used by other brain regions and, and read out in ways to support behavior, but is not, it, it's not built just by reading out CA1 that that is where the right thinks it is. It, it, it's it, it's uh, much more complex than that. I also think that it's very dangerous to talk about one brain structure telling the rat. Mm-hmm. The rat is the brain, right? Unless we're going to actually buy into either a Descartesian point or a, a homunculus or something, you know, that at some level, what does it mean to know where you are? There's a representation of where you are that has behavioral outcomes, right? And the question of, you know, what does it mean to imagine something? Well, it means that the sensory cortices are reactivating this signal. That is imagination. It's not that the sensory cortices are telling, a, you know, the person somehow. Those are the person. And there's, of course, lots and lots of evidence that, you know, the physicality of the brain, I and mean, we all, this is something I'm pretty sure everybody in the room is pretty comfortable with. But to be honest, a lot of the students that I see coming through, that's the biggest, I don't know, I don't want to say stumbling blocks, not quite the right word. The biggest barrier to get over is to start stop thinking dually and start thinking as this is just another language for it. And I, I think it's really interesting that we still keep falling back on that kind of dualistic language, even though I don't think any of us buys into it. I think the evidence is pretty compelling that it has to be abandoned. Right. Um, 
If you take any complex system, pick your department or something like that, or a society, you wouldn't ask such questions of the society. Where's the culture? Where would you, would you go to the banks to find the culture? Do you go to the museums to find the culture? Is it in the theaters? Right? Where is that? It's clearly in the interactions of all of these things. And if you were to manipulate one of them, it's very likely you will have consequences on the other. Maybe directly, maybe with some time delay, um, but it's very difficult in a complex system to identify, you know, the crucial uh, center, if you will, the seat of the of the uh, you know at the pineal gland. If you want to <laughs> go back to Descartes, I think we've abandoned that sort of thinking, and we haven't replaced it with an easy to understand, easy to talk about, easy to communicate. Um, alternative, but we know that we are looking for it. The, the interesting thing is, though, we jump in my truck. Oh, how could you say that? We all know that too. But but the interesting thing is that we all we slip into that mode of thinking, even though we all we all agree that exactly that we, none of us, I don't think, are Cartesian dualists. Yet we we have to actively, you know. And we don't think about it in terms of our systems, but often talk about other systems, we, we fall into that and we have to train students not to think that way about our system. So it kind of just shows how ingrained it is There's to a think big about, idea. about it. Yeah, that, that, that this is, uh, um, that somehow there's something magical about, about, about these cells. And, that's and it adds to the complexity that the more we know about them, the more complex it gets because now we know that even within place cells, even within a sub-region there is so much heterogeneity and you have superficial cells and deep cells and depending on the inputs where whether uh, they are um, in the proximal distal axis or the dorsal ventral axis, they have different properties. So it's, it's more about understanding probably at some level the microcircuitry um, and all the projections and inputs of any given cell in combination with other factors, the state of the animal, and so many other things that um, it's a very complex picture. So maybe looking at the, pro at the problem as a whole is more important than trying to pinpoint the root or the specific function. It's always a question of where, how does that heterogeneity translate across, uh, you know, strains and species, mm -hmm. and yeah. how consistent is it? Even if it's consistent within a strain of an animal, is it consistent within the species? Is it, and what are the consequences of those complexities mm -hmm. um, in the behavior? Um, I definitely think, and the other thing is, of course, that those. There's a dynamics to it that we tend to ignore, you know, that, you know, that within any, um, you know, even the, the effect of one neural structure talking to another neural structure can change from moment to moment because of phase dynamics. I mean, Andre had that great example of, you know, riding the surf, riding the wave in the surf, um, which I really want to steal us from my class. Um, but he really, you know, where those moments are in the oscillations mm -hmm. coming in and out of phase can have dramatic effects that are invisible at the anatomical level. 
and that adds to the complexity. Right. One of the the things that I you know pray for, I'm not religious, <laughs> um, is that within this complexity, there's actually a bunch of simple rules, and <laughs> one of our problems is we're treating things that are um, by their functional anatomy at least and how they've been wired are distinctive that's what the heterogeneity means and we're treating them as if they're the same and so given the limited tools that we have today we don't have a choice about that but we're developing better and better ways of looking at these cells and ideally I think one of the things we we all talked about today was our at least intention of looking for not a description of all the details of any particular system, but the sufficient details to recognize what it is is canonical and fundamental, if you will, to make inferences and to, to drive understanding across navigation, across memory, across decision, because there's an underlying, I have to call it, you know, belief or fantasy, right? That's the goal that at least at the level at which we're operating now, that there are common fundamental features across all of these, what would appear to be distinctive psychological domains, but they're really at the neural level implemented in some set of common ways. And that I certainly um, am trying to pursue exactly that. I've been dealing with a lot of uh, kind of psych kind of the balance between the neuroscience and the psychology level, and I've really learned to appreciate the concept of the construct, and that a lot of the question is finding the right construct to talk about the question. Right? And so I found, for example, that talking about things in terms of constructs of information processing has become much easier than some of the circuit level constructs. You know, but what are the right constructs for us to be playing with? I was having a discussion with somebody about, you know, why is neuroscience so hard? And I, I said, well, part of it's because we don't know what the right constructs are. And he says, yeah, physics is easy. And I'm like, that's because physics is settled on momentum is useful and zodiac is not. But at one time, they were looking at zodiac of your birth date as a construct. And another time, they were looking at momentum as a construct. We kind of dropped zodiac because it's not a useful construct. And so one of the things that I wonder now is, you know, what are the right constructs for us to be talking about in the neuroscience level? And I think that's a lot of what the debate is happening right now is, and as Andre said, what's the, what's the, what's the shape of the, the, the regularity that we can talk about? To me, what's exciting about that is I feel that certainly across the, the time I've been in the game, there's a recognition of the constructs that we currently have aren't going to get us there. And so we're in that middle period where we're casting about, and maybe we're starting to settle on some things. There's certainly some candidates, but um, we definitely aren't there. But we're a long way from where I started which was we kind of knew how to talk about this, and if you didn't talk about it this way, you know, you were out. Your professor would tell you, don't ever talk about it like that. But I do think, I mean, I do think on the other hand, you know, one of the things we saw today in the symposium was how 
we've all converged on similar results and similar constructs, even though we weren't actually working on what we thought were the same thing. Right? I mean, this is something that always amazes me when, you know, we come up and we say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to run this experiment this way, and somebody else says, yeah, I ran my experiment that way, and we come up with the same answer. There's, there's been a remarkable level of convergence in this field over the last we're going to admit how old the three, you know, four of us are, but you know, the last thirty years. We're going to have to talk about how old we are. But what, what, how long we've been in the game? <laughs> and so that, to me, is the interesting thing, right? The data are pointing to very similar uh, features or phenomena. What we haven't quite figured out yet is what words to attach to that to communicate the meaning. So what are we talking about? Data. What are some of the commonalities that you guys uh, are, are finding amongst? the different branches all sort of coming together. Well, for example, we can look at the point of local versus non-local representations, right? For example, the point that on certain phases of the, the theta cycle, right, which uh, when an animal is paying attention to the world, the hippocampus, of course, shows this, this kind of 7 to 10 hertz uh, rhythm, which is, during which you have this kind of representations of local and non-local information, and the fact of when the oscillations, these sub-oscillations occur that give you local and non-local information, we're finding convergence on at least half a dozen labs doing very different experiments on actually different species, different strains of animals, and they're coming up with similar results of when is it representing, you know, we're talking about imagination, when is it representing the location of the animal, and when is it representing some non non-current location of the animal that is somehow also important to the animal. Right. We can recognize that from the local field potential features. Right. What word I attach to that? Is that imagination? Is it recollection? Is it uh, planning? I don't know what the right words are, but certainly a number of laboratories have pointed to that same thing as having those attributes. So is it just about coming up with a language, a new common language, and, and how does that happen? Because we've, we've seen this come up, this idea of, if, of, of naming something and how that sort of determines outcomes in a field uh, before. And how do you imagine, I mean, you, you were the guys or who were doing the coining here, right? Well, we have to talk about it in terms of, not in terms of psychological constructs, as if there's a one-to-one -one mapping between a property or a behavior that you might study at a cognitive level or a whole animal behavior level and expect oh, we're going to see a correlate of that in the brain that, that that's where it's done. I mean, it, 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 we're going to have to talk about the circuits as they are, that they're, they're doing some, some specific function, some computation, they're getting inputs, computing them, and getting outputs, and then somehow that information is being sent to different parts of the brain under different circumstances, perhaps being routed to different regions based on oscillations, so this idea that during the slow gamma is hippocampus communicating with CA3, when they're coherent in slow gamma, when they're coherent in fast gamma, that's making the interaction with the entorial cortex stronger, and, and, and that's, and then presumably entorial cortex has relationships with other parts of the brain, and, 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 and somehow at this, at this 
level of, of interacting brain regions is what's giving the final behavior. But, but that's not saying that the hippocampus is doing this, or even that these, these gamma cycles are doing this. That, and, that, and so we have to think about what, well, what is the gamma cycle? Well, it, what its job may be doing is just, just a way of routing information and, and having two brain areas be more uh, 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 consistent or, or, or robust in its communication with each other and, and coordinating this, the temporal dynamics of, of, of interchange of information between these areas to do in the service of some computation, but that computation can be applicable to many different psychological processes or, or behaviors. And, um, and I, I think, and, and, and the trick a, a physiologist has for that is is understanding that because the same cell or the same brain region can have phenomenologically very different response properties or response correlates that you think are completely different. And there was the, the example I gave at the at one part of the talk, maybe at the at the end, was it appears that in in, in the hippocampus system. Under certain conditions, these cells can appear like they're encoding time. In other conditions, they appear they're encoding distance traveled. And another condition, it appears they're encoding space. Now, time, distance, and space, phenomenologically, are completely different variables. And you might think, oh, what's going on here? This makes no sense. But when you look at the, at the computational point of view, they can all be tied together at, at that point. It's the same circuit when you change in nature the inputs, the outputs of the computation of course change, but it's the same circuit, it's the same computation. That's what you have to understand. And I think that's again easier said than done, but but that is I think the level that we have to look at these and, and understand that when we when we stick our lectures there and get these neural responses, that's all they are. It's too easy to go from a neural response and say, oh that's a neural representation. I'm not and, even sure that the response is the right word. Okay. Which is How is that different from a neural response? And I said, well, and I had to think about it. And 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 the difference is that a neural response or a neural or, or, or an activity of a neuron tied to some independent variable—that's all that is. You can't say that that neuron is representing that unless. Absent some theory right. of of what Absolutely. that part of the brain is doing and what is the role of that, otherwise, I, I, neural correlate, neural well, correlate. That's why people say all the time, "I got a neural right. correlate of but X." I, that doesn't mean anything. Said, I think yeah. the, key the key is really talking about theory yeah. because yes. fundamentally, the key is that if you want to talk about something like what are the what is the brain actually doing and how does the brain do it you need a way of connecting these different levels from the molecular to the cellular to the systems to the be psychological to the behavior. And um, I would argue that a lot of the psychological processes and these psychological constructs are translatable into neural, not neural circuitry, but neural processes that interact across circuitry in specific ways. But you've got to have specific concrete theoretical statements 
that you can connect between these. And I think too often we take trivial statements pretending they are not theoretical when what they actually are is theoretical, right? The statement like the hippocampus tells you where you are actually contains a huge amount of theoretical baggage that has to be unpacked. And when you unpack it, it becomes less and less viable, right? But if instead you talk about the computation of hippocampus as taking certain aspects of inputs with these kinds of representations and these representations on these tasks do this thing and on those tasks do those things, and now you have connections between these that are doing these computations in specific ways, these things become theoretical at a level where we can make quantitative, qualitative, and quantitative predictions. And one of the things that's been, I mean, Andre was talking about kind of how things have changed over the last 20 years or more. I've been shocked at how often these theoretical statements have actually come out and been tested and found to be true in ways that really, I have to say, shocked me. So you're hearing us fumble, if you will, with language because I think we don't have agreement on what that theory is. Um, one, one concept that was in all of our talks today, and I think certainly governs how I think about things, is this notion of a, you know, an attractor system or a competitive network, a system that is self-organizing, will in the presence and or absence of any particular set of inputs generate a organized, recognizable output that's non-random and actually deterministic in, in, in many ways. And there's a neural architecture that goes with that. The details we can fight about, but there are some general principles of global or a pervasive inhibition of cells that tend to fire together or tend to represent the same thing, happen to either get similar inputs or are mutually excitatory, that kind of thing. My intuition is if we build our thinking in some way in that sort of mechanistic theoretical framework, at least we can start to evaluate our distinctive kinds of experiments from that lens to understand are we talking really about the same kinds of mechanisms. And if we by luck or by genius, whichever way I'm happy to go with, with the luck. Um, if, we, if we happen to hit on the right um, way of framing that, then as a community we actually can work together in building that thing that we're struggling right here to talk about. So it, it seems to me like there's this uh, real focus on like the canonical system functioning in, in an optimal way, and then people, you know, perturb a protein and create a disease state or try to model schizophrenia, but it really seems important to look at the extremes, how the system is built, and how the system degrades with age. It seems like there are a lot of clues in there in terms of what happens to these representations, like your work, Isabel, has shown that that these place cells just, they don't crystallize the same way, I guess, in certain types of uh, situations. Why is that? What connections are lost? Are the grid cells doing, or is the input and the output, like what are the sort of dynamics of that, right? But the interesting part of that is that it was a specific situation. When I was describing the animals were 
disoriented because if you look, as I was saying, if you look, for example, in age rats, the the physiological differences with young rats are very minimal, and that's the work that Carol Barnes has done for years. Um, there are not so many differences at the physiological level, including plasticity, play cells, yet uh, at the behavioral level you see these profound differences. So, again, how do you explain that? Uh, this is one of those beautiful examples where, because we've actually did a lot, there was a lot of theoretical work that Carol and many other people were doing in those years, uh, the very small changes that happen physiologically have predictable consequences because of the kind of things that Andre's talking about, about we know a lot about the circuits, we know a lot about the mechanism and about models, you know, uh, computational models of those circuits that were able to then predict what would be the right probe trial to separate these very specific effects. And you look, you know, one of my favorite examples is Carol's 1997 paper, the multi-stability paper, where they actually took this very specific model of attractor dynamics, consequences of physiolo physiology that they had learned from slice work on uh, changes in the uh, LTP uh, that happens with aged animals, and predicted that you would actually see multi-stability, which they then found in the remapping, changing between young and old animals. And then from that, made a specific prediction as behavior, and then were able to go back in because they were, <laughs> they have this wonderful database that they kept of all of their animals. They were able to go back to this huge database of, of behavior on the water maze and identify, honestly, a very surprising effect that completely changed how everybody had been thinking about um, behavior on the water maze. Right? And that was, again, it was one of these, that's a great example of a case where, you know, the, these specific changes are identifiable to a behavior because we had that theoretical stage, we had theoretical stages. And I don't want to give the impression that those theoretical stages are 100% are right. I mean, theory is never right, it's always sometimes useful. Right, and that the, the, the classic line, right? All, all theory is wrong, sometimes it's useful, right? Um, it's useful when it's wrong. Exactly, and that's actually another important point. But even, but one of the things we often see, and I think this is the case, is the theory was in the right ballpark. And it was enough in the right ballpark to actually drive enough understanding to create new experiments that produce surprising results. I'll add to that what's particularly interesting about that example is, on the one hand, you can say, oh, we understand something about aging now, right? Or when I use a model that might be thought of as a schizophrenia model or an autism model or depression, or you can give it whatever name you want. Oh, we're learning something more about that disease state or dysfunction state. What's interesting, and in particular in my laboratory, why we use these animal models of dysfunction is I'm actually trying to understand the normal system, but I don't know what to manipulate. Right? And I'm using cues from the very rich clinical literature and the genetics that a lot of people are spending effort to identify that this is a factor that has some relationship. And we understand phenomenologically what aging looks like 
in this example. And so the study of the dysfunction not only taught us about the dysfunction state, but it actually allowed us to feel more confident about the theoretical underpinnings that built up the predictions in the first place. And so I'm a big fan of what can sometimes be called translational work because it actually helps us understand the fundamental work also. True enough. I agree. <laughs> Funding agencies definitely agree. Uh, I feel like we could go on a couple more hours, but I'm going to have to cut it short, and you guys can continue over dinner. This has been so much fun. Thank you, Isabel Muzio, David Reddish, Charlie Wilson, uh, Andre Fenton, and Jim Kinnearum. I'm glad you pronounced your name first and not me. Um, thank you for joining us, everyone. This has been Neuroscientist Talking About. It's been fun.